All right, everybody, it's uh, David Fitch and Mike Moore, and we're back on the Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets the issues of culture for God's mission, His kingdom in the world, or something like that. Mike Close Moore, enough. hey, uh, we were just talking hockey. Yeah, I got to rub it in. <laughs> Pittsburgh Penguins went down. Yeah, but Dave, they made it to the dance. Which is more than the Blackhawks can say. Okay, this this is the kind of podcast we're going to have, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, instead of being Christian about this, uh, we're going to go back and forth and turn it into an antagonism. No, we're not. Uh, it's good to be back here after several weeks away. Uh, and the weather has not gotten any warmer in Chicago. Nope. Uh, and uh, Mike Moore has not got... Uh, out sun tanning yet? Have you, Mike? No, I I, I get uh, I get red. I do not get tan. All right. Well, I suggest you stay away from the sun. Uh, <laughs> anyways, it's not good for your health, folks. We have a special guest with us today, and uh, we're so looking forward to it. His name is Luke Brotherton, the Cushman Distinguished Professor of Moral and Political Theology at Duke University. And uh, we're here to talk about his uh, book from a couple of... Uh, 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 Luke, welcome to the podcast, by the way. It's great to be with you. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. And we noticed you've got a British accent. Why is that? Uh, did, did, did you practice that for acting school or did perchance you... Were you born in the UK? Uh, for my sins and for my welfare, I was born in London, uh, born and bred, <laughs> and then moved here 20, 2012, so been here about a decade. And, and the southern accent of Durham, North Carolina, evidently hasn't taken root yet. Uh, so I think the I, I think the People's Republic of Durham, North Carolina, which is uh, I think one can one couldn't say it has a distinctive accent. But as soon as you move beyond the um, the People's Republic, you, you certainly hear a North Carolinian accent. Right, Do well, that I occasionally have to put on a slight twang to my voice to be understood, <laughs> particularly when I'm talking to bank bank people for some reason. Uh, you know, the skill of translation is an important one for all theologians. So uh, we know you probably have learned how to navigate the language down there in North Carolina. But the name of the book, Christ in the Common Life, Political Theology in the Case for Democracy, uh, 2019. Now this, by the way, I, I, uh, I think I read six months ago, a very thorough very uh, exhaustive uh, and yet unique approach to political theology. Um, Luke, why don't you start out? I mean, I'm going to ask a really pedantic question. What is your definition of political theology, and, and why would it be important for, let's say, pastors to even care about political theology? That's a great. That's a great question. So I think at its most, if you really strip it down, political theology is just theological reflection on politics. And when I say politics, what do I mean? I mean, basically, when I meet someone I don't like, disagree with, find threatening or difficult in any way, I could do one of really four things. I can either kill them, I can either coerce them, so I don't have to pay any attention to them, I can do what I want. I can either make life so difficult that I cause them to flee, or I could do politics. I can negotiate some kind of common life amidst asymmetries of power and competing visions of the good. And so those really are the only four options, kill, coerce, cause to flee, or do politics. And so I think Christians, 
you know, should be pretty invested in the fourth option as a, as a basic form of neighbor love and human existence. Uh, and so I think at that most basic level, that's why pastors should be concerned about it. But I think as we've seen over the past few years, we tend to think, oh, well, politics is what happens out there. It's, you know, dirty business or it's something Christians shouldn't get involved in. Or we take our line from whatever political party we've, we kind of support or, or some ideological checklist which, which arises in our head from our newsfeed. But actually, I think as we've seen things like whether it's mask mandates, whether it's um, all sorts of different things, we can't avoid politics. That, that If politics is that negotiation of a common life, whether within the church or between the church and other communities, you're always in a negotiation of some kind of common life. There's always going to be conflicts arising and the question then is the quality and character of our relationships when we're cultivating and negotiating that common life. So I think the church is a politics. The church is inevitably involved in politics. And we see that in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. The very language we have to talk about God, sovereign, uh, sovereign Lord, um, the church, the name for the church in Greek, Ecclesia, was a public assembly of the people of a city liturgy itself like tour gear is a work service of the people on behalf mm-hmm. of the general good every there's so much of our language about god about divine human relations about who we are in relation to god is steeped in political terms because why because you can't talk about god you can't talk about love of neighbor you can't talk about what it means to be human in relationship with god and each other outside of some kind of political lexicon so whether you like it or not you are involved in political relations what it means to be church is a political relation what it means to be in relation with god is a political relation so we better think theologically about that or else it's going to be trafficking in non-political unfaithful often deeply idolatrous terms Wow. Um, and so uh, yes your use of the political and the argument for uh, pastors, uh, leaders of the church to be very invested in political work uh, is compelling. Uh, what you do in this book, Christ in the Common Life, is you're actually making uh, an argument, uh, a push for pastors and churches to have an investment in democracy. Um, what do you say before we even get into the uh, issue of should Christians care about and be invested in the future of democracy, what do you say about the current state of democracy in the United States? Um, is the antagonism, all the division, you know, the malformation of just plain, of, of persons like, okay, try not to name names, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, right. are, are the... Uh, are, and all the people that have turned into these angry Trumpsters or anti-Trumpsters, is that just a product of what democracy actually is? Is it endemic to the participation of democracy? Or can Christians contribute to make for a better democracy? This is a big question for, yeah. like, Mike Moore, who's trying to pastor a church. Like, we're going, hey, the more we participate in democracy, or let's say the more we encourage people to vote, it just seems to get worse. Right. Yeah, no, I think I think this is a, 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 a righteous concern, shall we say. I mean, I think people should be concerned about this. People are concerned about it. I don't think it's inherent 
in democracy in quite the way we assume it is. Um, so when I say when we say democracy and when we say kind of politics, we tend to think of party politics of either you know the 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 kind of slanging match that goes on between parties in in inside the beltway or in state houses uh, or kind of backroom deals you know that that kind of state focus control of the state but and conflict between different parties and conflict between different ideological positions i think that's a that is part of politics but it that's that's not all of politics and we shouldn't reduce politics to that and so democracy isn't just reducible to election times and party politics and conflicts in the Supreme Court. It's also this sense of uh, each person. It's most fundamental. What does democracy mean? It means each person should have some say and agency in determining their living and working conditions. So that whether that's in the workplace, that's economic democracy. You should have some say. You shouldn't just we shouldn't just have a kind of licensed despotism in the workplace. Um, you should have some say in agency there, and there are various ways of organising that. And likewise, where you live and your neighbourhoods and your state or the nation state as a whole, you need to have some say in agency in determining your, your living conditions. And so that, that is the question of how do we uh, uh, cultivate a context in which each person can have their agency. And in Christian terms, have some sense that if... God, if we're each made in the image of God and each person has a unique dignity and we can only discover that in relationship with others, we're not in some kind of Brownian motion competing with each other. We're not just a bunch of individualistic, self-contracting consumers who have to kind of exchange you know, relations with each other. No, we we're only become who we are before God and before each other through relationship with each other we're, we're made for relationship we only exist in relationship there's no me without you and there's no you without me and so it, i can only discover my dignity discover my agency discover who i am through relationship with you with with others and therefore it matters the quality and character the virtues if you like of my relationship with others and so a context in which i can't act means i can't discover my agency which means I can't become fully the person I'm created to be in and through others. Um, and so that, that really is the important bit of democracy we lose sight of. Now, that there will be conflicts, yes. They're, they're in, 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 but, you know, two people in a church and you're going to have three different theologies and kind of fights about how you should do worship and whether you should keep pews in. The question then is, and this is why Jesus and says, it's not you won't have enemies, it's love your enemies. And so then how do we build a shared life with others in which we're not killing, coercing or causing them to flee, or in church terms, endlessly schisming, uh, while we come together and work out what does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to look after the kids? What does it mean to you know, educate people here or, or whatever it is the issue of that. how are we going to get clean water to these people from this place you know whatever the very mundane or, or more substantive issues are we have to come together to solve shared problems and each of us has, has to have some say and agency in doing that and that's democracy that that i don't that one person doesn't dictate how everyone else should live or uh, that a small elite a plutocracy should dictate how everyone else should live there should be some shared deliberation about how we come together to form that common life. 
Um, okay, uh, <clears throat> Mike Moore. Um, this all sounds good, <clears throat> but um, um, <laughs> but. I, but uh, you know, I spent a good deal of my childhood growing up in Canada, uh, Luke, UK, parliamentary democracies. A little more to me, a little more par, uh, palatable. How, Luke, how, how does it affect your views on democracy moving and living in the United States, where I got to tell you, it is a, uh, I'm not using bloody in the UK uh, swearing sense. It's a bloody mess down here. <laughs> Doesn't that change? Has that changed at all? Your optimism about the prospects of democracy. And oh, I'm not, as- I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. But, uh, <laughs> but I do practice the virtue of hope. Uh, okay. And hope is is that virtue which says in the midst of the darkness in the midst of the horror and the unbelievable stupidity and folly of human nature that is not the last word and that is not the definitive word christ is the alpha and the omega and so therefore we have to act now in the face of folly and stupidity and evil in the light of that first and last word and not let the evil and foolish word have the last word. And so we always, we, we have, should be profoundly attuned to the tragic and uh, terrible nature of politics in this age while also be refusing to be defined by it. And, you know, I come from Britain. Brexit, it's an equal mess. You know, I'm looking across Europe. It's the rise of neo-fascist <laughs> yeah. parties, the Front National, mm. just nearly one. I mean, not, but, you know, was the biggest party contender in France. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, there's a war in Europe where, Ukraine, you know, Ukraine is being invaded, not out of a modern ideology of communism or fascism. It's, it's, it's a bad form of political theology which is driving putin so in the light of that america you know yeah it's bad i'm it's not as bad as other bits of places (laughs) i come from they're worse it it could be um, worse and that's that's my mantra for this for this cultural moment is it it could get worse it's not it's not it could get worse it always gets worse (laughs) but i think yeah so i think i mean i think i think it it the, the the ways we've across the western world lost the habits of um being able to engage in in this kind of tensional dance of conflict and conciliation but i think that's always there's always a there's a there's a there's a temptation to think the world was getting better after the second world war yeah. Um, and we have this kind of narrative of progress in our heads. I think that's, a, that's not a theological narrative. Christ is equally present um, at, to all periods of history. We're not endlessly moving towards a better time, and that's the foolishness of a kind of progressive mindset. But I do think the parallel in our own moment is with the 1920s and 30s when you had a hyper-polarized politics in both America and across Europe, fascism, communism, Deep, both deeply paranoid, deeply suspicious, uh, congr- you know, and churches being seduced by one or other of those kinds of ways of proceeding. Mm. And the middle ground is always seen as the as an act of uh, treachery to either one of those polarities. So we've been here before. Um, there was a moment of recovery in the light of that when we did recover a more 
consensus-based centrist politics. And we've lost, we've lost those habits again, and we have to fight. And that's part of the why I have to make a case for democracy is my concern is Christians are too easily seduced by these hyper-polarized ideologies mm. of whether of the left or the right and, and recovering that sense of how do you respect the dignity of each and all person, including your enemies, as those who should have an agency in forming our common life. And what does it mean to center that view rather than some ideological checklist that arise from your newsfeed? Hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's great. Uh, so, so basically, I mean, I've often wondered uh, if I could convince uh, a Trump voter uh, that this is not about Trump, this is about democracy or authoritarian rule. Uh, Mike Moore, uh, how do you, uh, you know, when you're pastoring and when you're with your house group, does that sell when you're dealing with people who are disagreeing with you on who you're going to vote for, especially, you know, who the man whose name we shall not mention, T-R-U-M-P. <laughs> the does what sell? Uh, well, uh, this is not a this is not an election about Trump. This is an election about sure. authoritarianism versus democracy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, what's oftentimes hard for me is finding a starting point to talk with people I disagree with. Uh, and, and I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about that, Luke, um, based on what you said earlier. And, and I know I know you have a wonderfully thoughtful answer to this and you've probably been asked this many times, but, but as you're talking uh, earlier, you said becoming all that we are meant to be individual agency. And then all of a sudden I started feeling kind of allergic. I'm like, uh Oh, uh Oh. And I started hearing in my mind, you know, my, my body, my baby. And then I hear over here, my face, my mask. And I'm like, well, all these, you know, individuals are, you know, exercising their autonomy and they're becoming who they were meant to be. But then it just feels really um, brittle and kind of fraught. And mm -hmm. it's hard to know how to move forward when we have this log jam of individual rights. So how do you, how do you negotiate those conflicts? What's the right starting point yeah. uh, in those moments? So I think it's important to say it's uh, the, that view, whether of a, a kind of left, left, view or right view of the um, absolute uh, um, priority of individual self-expression, whether it's, you know, about mask mandates or, you know, um, wh whatever it is, the, that, that is not a view I share. It's not a view I'm advocating. Sure. Um, and that's why it's, it's about a common life. I, there is no I that can survive, let alone thrive, without others. Mm -hmm. We only exist in communities of interdependence and mutual care, whether that's, you know, from a young age to an old age, this kind of rare moment, I'm, I'm now past my 50s, I'm feeling the aches and pains, you know, <laughs> this rare moment of, of, we might say, physical autonomy itself is an illusion. Um, when we feel it. And so any time we have some notion of mastery or control, uh, an attempt to render ourselves invulnerable hmm. and not having to care for those, even those <clears throat> we disagree with, we are in a <clears throat> fantasy land 
that is going to generate not not just other people's destruction, but our destruction. And the key thing here is any time someone thinks that they don't have to be burdened with the care of others is because they've structured a form of life and are benefiting from a form of life in which others are bearing their burdens so that they don't have to mm. be bothered with them. Um, and we see that constantly, whether it's you know, outsourcing of this, that, and the other to some other land far away, yeah. whether it's you know, uh, some people doing their cleaning so you don't have to clean. Like, mm. We're always structuring life so I don't have to be burdened. But the, but the idea that somehow I'm not deeply enmeshed in mm. the lives of others, particularly the poor and the vulnerable, yeah. on whose my life depends to survive, let alone thrive, is magical thinking. And so this any form of radical autonomy or radical individualism, whether of the left versions or right versions, is magical thinking, which is deeply destructive of both self and others mm. um, and is normally sutured into some kind of form of oppression as well. Mm. Um, and again, I say that both left and right. Yeah. Um, so I think... It's important to. That's an important corrective because I think it's it's it, it. We we have to, on a kind of theological anthropology, we're always persons in relation. Um, the Trinity as as persons in relation to the ground of all reality out of which creation flows, and so the, we only come to be human through interdependent relations of care. Now, the, then the question is where to begin the story, where, how to begin yeah. relationship with those who who are very different from ourselves, and and I think often the problem is. Um, we are, we're often begin the conversation in the wrong place or, or at the wrong time. And here's a good example is, is some colleagues of mine who do some work in uh, here in North Carolina with evangelicals uh, around um, environment and climate change. And they would go in, they, they were talking about this, and they would go into some you know, church or something and they, and they would say, you know, come up with big, they'd have big flip boards with data mm-hmm. and all yeah. And, and, you know, and they, and they said no one was really interested, no one was listening. And it was a classic kind of technocratic, liberal, yeah. progressive, technocratic view. And I'm like, I'm all surprised. You're just, you're basically going into their sanctuary and telling them they're a bunch of idiots because they don't mm. agree with you. Like, that's mm. never going to go well. Everyone's yeah. always going to go, you know, get lost <laughs> and like, get out of here. Yeah. I'm like, why, why don't you begin a conversation with what they love? and what they mm. cherish, and what they're worried about. And so, for example, ask them, do they go hunting and fishing? It's a big kind of pastime around here. Yeah. What would it take for their children and children's children to go duck hunting in the woods and lakes that they love going duck mm. hunting in? What, what are the conditions that would make that possible? Begin the conversation there. Mm. And often, too often, we put program, whether that's ideological, procedural, bureaucratic, or whatever it is, or missional, yeah. before people we don't begin with people we begin with program and that's never going to go well hmm. um people are always going to no one wants to be a subject of someone else's social engineering or michelin engineering project they want to be loved as a person and for that they want to be treated as a biography someone who has a story a voice who's in a meshed in a set of relationships they care about rather than biology a statistic a, mm-hmm. a, an item on an agenda uh, uh, you know, a, a log in someone's account book or whatever it is. And I think that's really our challenge. And that should be Christians should see people as people, as people made in the image of God. And too often we just see them as part of our own Christian social engineering program. Hmm. Yeah, that's oh, <clears throat> that is so good. Uh, find something in the most disagreeable or the dis- 
the biggest disagreements, find something you can agree with, find a starting point, find a place uh, to connect. Uh, but I'm going to do the opposite right now. Uh, <laughs> by the way, uh, Luke just said he's over 50. Folks, he doesn't look a day over 29. Yeah, he's got unbelievable right. hair. It's very good and hair. He's got uh, Mike Moore and Luke have amazing hair. Uh, I'm jealous as all get out. But anyways, that's that's not for the podcast. That's for another time. Um, okay, getting back to, I'm going to push a little bit in this direction against everything that has just been said, only because this is a podcast and we can do that. Um, we have a common friend. Stanley Hauerwas. And Stanley, especially 20, 30 years ago, was notorious for uh, taking this, uh, showing that democracy formed people into self-centered, narcissistic idiots. Uh, what did you expect? It was a, it was a political system built on uh, independent selves making up their own minds. He would say things like, uh, uh, if I can do my, my best, Stanley imitation um it's inherently violent the 51 percent get to tell the 49 percent where to go okay it's like but it's i gotta we, say it's low mark it's low marks i think it's at the 59 percent <laughs> tell the 49 percent where to go we, we had adjacent offices uh, for many whose years was better <laughs> whose whose imitation was better mike moore um okay well, he he would say things like you know uh, we, we all vote for candidates. We vote for commercials, you know? And, and so the whole idea there, and I think things have changed maybe in the last maybe five, six, seven years, but the whole idea is their democracy is problematic at its core in terms of a formation of a people. And I think you were seeing some of this in, in, as evidence all around us. And I got to ask myself as a pastor, do I want to encourage this democracy? And, and frankly, maybe we just need to be the church, a different kind of political formation that can engage the mess we're in. And maybe democracy is not the answer that Walter Rauschenbusch said it was going to be. Have you got any? Uh, I know you've probably had these conversations with Stanley numerous times. What's your response to all that? <laughs> no, we have we, we talked about we we many years we had adjacent offices, so we, this is okay. a kind of conversation that uh, run and run. Um, so yeah, so I think I mean I think so. Stanley's take there is on democracy as a mode of statecraft. So it's around it's about election time, control of the state, a mechanism of sortition, if you like. That's what he's focused on in that critique. He's not talking about democracy as a social practice, and so whether that's the civil rights movement, whether that's uh, conscientious objectors, who he's a big fan of, uh, whether that's a group like Larsh as a, a, as a trying to take seriously the agency of the disabled in the formation of their living conditions. So in, inherent in, in Stanley's own view is a certain commitment to social practices which... Uh, uh, honour the dignity of people, particularly the least, the lost and the last, and something like care of the disabled being a very good example of that. Um, and and also a commitment to non-violence, i.e. you shouldn't kill, coerce or cause others to flee. You have to take them seriously. This is absolutely central to his whole view. I think, unfortunately, Stanley didn't give sufficient account. He, he moved towards this direction later in, later in life and has published 
stuff in favour of things like community organising, which I've written on a lot as well. Um, but I think that in that early work, the screed was against a certain kind of uh, liberal individualistic account of democracy as a mode of statecraft and the pathologies that can inherently generate. I don't think that, and I think insufficiently developed, was an account of um, democracy as a social practice for navigating a more and co- constituting a more just and generous shared life. Now, I think if you just take Stanley's view and the way Stanley's view has been weaponized in certain ways by the kind of Benedict option crowd, actually what we see is the the idea that the church should just be a holy enclave, wholly separate from society yeah. and huddle down, that's actually become ammunition and a view in support of precisely a certain kind of Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the church should somehow do its own thing, yeah. divorced from building a shared life with other communities, I think is extremely dangerous. And I think Stanley would recognise that now. He, he didn't pay attention to that dynamic. Now, I, I come at this, I worked in Central and Eastern Europe for six or seven years before I got into doing doctoral work. And, and a lot of my own work is born out of that context and seeing there, in many ways, what you could see is a model of precisely what Stanley was talking about. You had a church which was under pressure from communism, a totalitarian, violent totalitarian ideology, and had formed a kind of holy community separate from the world. Uh, unfortunately, that very act of separation reproduced the structures of control and surveillance inside, whether that with a heavy-handed legalism and a heavy-handed kind of heavy shepherding that generate, you know, not only the you can't smoke, drink, don't wear jeans, but hyper-control over people's lives. And when the wall came down, the struggle was how do you actually break out of that and, and actually become a place of welcome. And in my view, you can't really know what it means to be church outside of being in mission with those who are not church. And any time you form a holy enclave, you're probably reproducing the world in pretty toxic ways. And I think we see a lot of that in the church in mm. America today. Yeah. And mm. so outside of mission, and this isn't something I think that gets sufficient attention in Stanley's work, Outside of mission, there is no church, but out, but you've got to have some kind of church to be in mission. And then outside of both church and mission, you have to have some robust account of, of a just and generous common life in which you're forming a, a, a common life with others. And so the sense in which, and, and this is really where I pass Stanley, Stanley's one of Stanley's great lines is, the, the world cannot know itself as the world if the church isn't being the church, I say amen, but also the church cannot know itself as the church without being in relationship with the world through politics. And without, if you, if you lose either side of that equation, you end up with disaster. That was the money quote of this podcast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Mike Moore? Yeah, I agree. A comment yeah. on, uh, can you repeat that money quote and go off on it a little bit? Oh, you want you me know, to? Fill it in. You want me to riff on it? Yeah. Yeah, the, don't the, refine it. It was so good. You don't need yeah, to refine. I it. didn't say refine. I said riff, like we're playing jazz. Um, the world cannot go ahead. The world cannot be known apart from. Excuse me. The church cannot be known. Uh, say it again, Luke. Oh my <laughs> goodness, I blew it. <laughs> if the if the church if the world cannot know itself as the world without the church, the church cannot know itself as church without being in relationship with the world through politics. 
Oh, because we find so many churches that become this maintenance organization that shrink up, shrivel, and become an island unto themselves. They do not grow. They get focused on maintenance. And it's not till they're engaged in mission presence with the lost, the broken, the hurting, that they actually see anything of God Hmm. happening. Hmm. And I just find that over and over again in my experience with churches. And I would say, so a a key thing is, I mean, one of the great gifts of Stanley's work is this emphasis on worship and 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 liturgy and as how that forms the church as its own politics i think one of the problems though in the way that's been taken up is is this sense in which we it's the kind of matthew 25 moment is when i break bread and and take the wine at the eucharist is there's a way in which the liturgy is then a way to read the world and, and that's often the kind of direction of travel in that kind of ecclesial ethics kind of framework. I think, I think there's a problem in that, and, and this is the Matthew 25 point. Is Christ really, is the real presence of Christ in the sacraments, or is the real presence of Christ in the least, the lost, and the last, the broken, the wounded, uh, the, the marginalized? And that's where Christ shows up which we then symbolize, commemorate, enact in breaking of bread, in shed blood, which we take as, as Christ's blood in, in, the, in the cup. And so we've got the traffic going the wrong way. Hmm. And, and so I think that's part of the, the issue here is, are we learning who Christ is through our engagement with a broken world and, and our own complicity and woundedness in that? Or... Uh, are we somehow getting what we need and then exporting that as if it's a perfect product to that world? And I think that's, I'm always worried when it's from the church to the world rather than bringing the world into the church. That's, that's very interesting. And of course, uh, Luke doesn't know this, but uh, 99% of my work from the last 15 years has been the opposite. Uh, uh, Hauerwas, our friend, I think it was in that book, The Radical Ordinary. Uh, he said, um, okay, I won't do my imitation. But he, he said something like, we, we gather here to recognize his presence here so that we can recognize his presence out there. You're actually going in reverse, huh, Luke? I think, I mean, I, it's, I've put it probably too strongly. I think that's a kind of, I'm perhaps swinging the, swinging the pendulum too far the other way. But I think it, it's, an, it, it's an iterative interaction. And I think, uh-huh. you, I don't think it's just one or the other. If you, if you think you've got it all sorted out in the church and then export it, I think that is a problem. But equally, you know, there's, an equal, there's a kind of problem of assimilation if you just think it's there in the world and then you there's something in this interrelationship. So you've got to have relationship between both. And it goes back to what I said before is no church without the world, no world without the church. You've got to have both together. Um, um, Mike, make sure that money quote makes, makes the uh, show notes. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Cornell West uh, sees democracy as malformed by, uh, let's say neoliberal capitalism among other uh, sundry, problems and he um he views christian what we need is a prophetic christianity um the church acts as kind of a uh a prophetic 
voice. Um, but I think, now, uh, bear in mind, we all appreciate love Cornell West here. Um, but I think there's a kind of loss of, of the space of the politics of the church itself in his a commitment to reform democracy. Therefore, how do we overcome neoliberalism? Well, what's your take on Cornell? Do you see the same structure there? Or, or how do you see his, who, what is the church in Cornell West? I'm doing this because uh, I'm lecturing on it tomorrow night. And I need some help. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, bit, I'm a huge fan. I teach, I just finished a course I was teaching Cornell West. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his work. Although I, I think there's, a, there's two problems with his account. First, as I think as you're hinting there, um, it's difficult to derive any sense of the church, we might say the kind of church as institution, um, and and what is what is, what a positive account of the church as institution is, or, or as a kind of body politic and community of believers. And so the 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 history and um practices of the black church in his case aren't much in view um and so he tends to look to jazz to certain figures like baldwin um and interesting enough to people like thoreau and kind of the pragmatist tradition in america uh for what he calls his chekhovian christianity it's a, it's a fantastic term um but but i think so that's one problem like where is the church in cornell west it's pretty it's an absent presence um the other the other aspect is is really his account of prophecy uh, and and I think this goes more broadly to a to a common mistake that's out there, which is and I see this a lot in my students. Somehow, prophecy is what we do from the church to people we're disagreeing with, and of course, that's not the biblical picture of prophecy. Prophet, the prophet always comes first and foremost to the people of God, and and calls them to account for their idolatry and failure to be faithful to God and to then the poor in their midst or the resident aliens or the widow, the orphan or whoever. And so that sense in which the first word of the prophet, who is deeply embedded and enmeshed in the people of God and feels in their own body, that feels in their own life and enacts, you know, whether it's uh, running through the streets naked, marrying a prostitute, whatever it is, like crazy down stuff, enacts in their own life and body the the very wounds of the community mm. in which they're part of, mm. and I think that that sense of somehow prophecy is me shouting at other people about why they're wrong, mm. rather than prophecy is me taking responsibility for a community in which I'm a part and calling that community to account. Again, we see that in the kind of activist theology of of a certain social justice frame of reference and it's not to say the issues aren't right to engage with it's just to say is is the first word to other people or the first word to ourselves and then equally on the right you know whether southern baptist convention or whoever somehow we're we're out there denouncing these terrible liberal progressives rather than frankly taking responsibility for the horror and toxic mess of sexual abuse in their own community yes yes uh, there's another money quote for us, Mike Moore, on the nature of prophetic Christianity, speaking to ourselves, uh, not from a posture of power into the world. Okay, we got to wrap this up. It's been great. Uh, I got one more question. I'm going to throw this out to both Mike Moore and Luke Bretherton. Uh, you, uh, I don't think it was in this most recent, 
recent book, I think it was in another book, uh, Saul Alinsky, Rule for Radicals, um, Local Political Organizing. I think you spoke positively about that. I have that book, by the way, uh, on my bedside uh, next okay. to my bed. Uh, but uh, I just read a little piece of it. I can't take too much of it at one time. But anyways, um, is this... So we need to help pastors, in closing off this podcast, become practitioners of democracy. Can this book help help our pastors figure out how to be practitioners, political organizers for the kingdom is what I like to say in our, in our local spaces. Uh, I'm going to give it to Mike Moore first. <laughs> and then Luke, you're going to say the final words of this podcast, challenging pastors <laughs> to be political organizers for democracy. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to say yes. And then I want to say, obviously I'm going to say yes. Cause the author is looking at me right now, <laughs> but even no, no. But, <laughs> Luke is not the author, by the way, don't confuse Luke with Saul. Alinsky. Oh, sorry. I, I thought you, I thought you were referring to Luke's book. I was like, I, no. I, I feel like I'm being set up here. No, Saul Alinsky, uh, uh, Rules for Radicals is Yeah, I well, I, I do not have that book on my uh, bedside table. I saw it footnoted. But he is one. Times. Let me tell you something, folks. Mike Moore, where he lives and what he does, he is a Saul Alinsky. He just does, evidently, I don't think he knows it. But anyways, you have any comments before we hand it over to Luke? No, uh, just I, I, I need to read the book. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Luke then. Well, I, w- I would say don't don't read Rules for Radicals. Uh, read, his fir- read his first book. Okay. Uh, which is a much better read, uh, written in 1946, called Reve or Revele for Radicals, uh, full of stories. That's his constructive vision of democracy about how, you know, how do we build up the agency and dignity of each person? Yes. It's a much more compelling uh, book. The Rules for Radicals is, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it does its own work, but I, it's, people don't read the first one, which is a much more compelling constructive vision. And I think that they're in why I think that book, it does help pastors both form communities in their own churches and more broadly um and, and democracy begins at home and in, in terms of how do we form more just and generous common life in our own institutions let alone in the neighborhoods and communities of which we're a part i think it, it crucial to that is list, beginning with listening and not presuming to know what other people think or not thinking that politics is what happens when we force everyone we disagree with to leave the room before the conversation begins and trusting that people I disagree with, I dislike, who I find threatening actually might teach me something about how to live well. And that's, that was Alinsky in the 30s and 40s. He's an agnostic Jewish guy organizing um, and going into communities of explicitly anti-Semitic ethnic Catholics and others uh, who are listening to Father Coughlin, who's a fascist sympathizer, who's the kind of Rush Limbaugh of his day at a huge radio show. And he can see them both as, as fascist sympathizers and as potential renewers, renewers of democratic, American democratic prom- promise. And I think that's often central to Linsky's vision and the stories he tells is that people are complex, they have multiple loyalties, and democracy has to begin with people listening to people and their own stories and discern in the stories we tell together what are we, what are, what are our shared loves, what are our shared commitments, and what are we prepared to come together to act on 
uh, to make life a little better for us all. And that, I would say, you know, this is an Augustinian, this is going back to Augustine. What, what is politics ultimately? It's, it's based on our common objects of love, our shared objects of love. And the church is ultimately based on the shared focus of love of God and neighbor. But, but that sense of with, there is no shared life without what are we, what are we, what are we coming around together to determine what our shared loves are and and we don't know that beforehand we can't determine that by an ideological checklist and so i think often you know whether it's within the church or without the church we we often begin with this program uh, rather than with people and we actually took the time to build relationship through listening to people and i think that really for me is is central to the gospel we should be a people whose first response is to listen. And then that goes back to Romans, who are saved by hearing. It's the, it's the Shema, the first, the primary word of, of, uh, for the faithful Jewish men and women is hear, O Israel. There's a great line by St. Ambrose, which he says, you know, hear, O Israel. The Bible exhorts us not to speak first, but to listen that we fail not in our tongue. And it's a beautiful line that kind of encompasses... Wow the power of listening and because when i listen to someone i say you matter i say you've got a story i say you're a human before god and before me and i'm going to take the time to take you seriously when we start with our prophetic word or start with our denunciation or don't take the time to listen we're actually i think desecrating the human in the other and therefore they won't hear the good news and we're not telling good news because we're not saying first and foremost yes to them as a human. <clears throat> that was that was fabulous. Um, um, I think uh, we're getting a vision for how to be the people of God uh, to and uh, and to listen to anybody. We have to be with somebody. We have to be present with somebody. Mm. Uh, and so, thank you very much, Luke. Brotherton for, uh, first of all, the book, Christ in the Common Life, uh, the Saul Alinsky uh, recommendation, which I did not know. I will put that in the notes. Uh, but let us all learn how to be uh, gatherers of people <clears throat> into the kingdom through these practices of democracy. Thanks again, Luke. Yes. Uh, so great to have you. Honor to be with you. And uh, maybe we can do it again uh, when you're uh, on the other side of the the big pond but uh we wish you well flourishing uh in in some of the things you're going to be doing uh mike moore it's been a pleasure being with you on theology and mission podcast here uh any announcements before we sign out yeah um thanks to everybody who joined us joined us last week at the theology and mission lectures with willie jennings and we're excited for next year um we are hopefully going to be announcing uh, who the speaker is any month now. Is that right, Fitch? Any day now, but you can't say who it is because we haven't uh, got the eyes down in the no, T scrub. No, but, but it's going to be big. But we're very it's excited. It's going to be big. Not as big as if we had Luke Bretherton, but it's going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Folks, that's it. <clears throat> that's it. We're wrapping up another session of Theology on Mission podcast. Thanks for li listening. 
If you have time, put a review, a very positive review. What, what do you call it, Mike? A five-star? Yeah, only five stars. Review. Yeah. On any platform except, uh, what's that one we went off on protest? Oh, uh, Spotify. Yeah. Ah. yeah well. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't want to talk about that, Luke, right now, but we'll, maybe afterwards. Thanks, everybody. It's time to sign out. Uh, it's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch over and out. Till next time. <laughs>